Hello, I'm John Lynchner, and welcome to On Not Knowing, a series of conversations about embracing a growth mindset. Today's guest is Raimo Bacchus, a long-term speech researcher, now retired and living in the Yorktown area. For many years, Raimo was one of the most active members of an AI book club organized by our very own Andy Aaron. Welcome, Raimo. I'm glad to be here, back in this building where I worked for more than half a century. So, so Raimo, I know that you were born in Estonia before the Second World War, so tell us about that. Yes, so that really gives me a long-term perspective. The other day, we were sitting around our TV screen and watching the movie The Sound of Music. And my granddaughter, in that movie, there is a scene where Rolf delivers a telegram. And my granddaughter says, what's a telegram? And I realize that all her life she has been texting. Life hasn't changed for her. But I can remember a time before the Second World War. So I have seen a lot of change, and this makes me realize that the world is going to continue to change. And I want to be on top of that. I want to predict where it's going. <laughs> and that's kind of what keeps my interest up in all this technology. So you were born, what was it, 1933, was it? I don't know, maybe you don't want to reveal yes. your age, but yeah, you were yeah, born... Yeah, 33. Okay, 33, all right. And so you, you experienced Hitler and uh, also the annexation yes. of Estonia, so many years of Stalin, so tell us a bit about that. Yes, well, actually not many years of Stalin. One year of Stalin and, what was it, maybe two or three of Hitler. Oh. One thing that I experienced then was just radical change of regime and radical change of policy. In 1940, when I was ready to go to first grade, suddenly that summer we were on vacation in the seashore town where my grandparents lived, and we were ready to go to the beach, but the bus didn't come, and instead there was a column of Russian soldiers marching down the street. It turned out that Estonia had been annexed by the great Soviet Union. Is that? that was 1940. So in first grade... We learned all about the great father Stalin working in the Kremlin. And, um, so you, you were under Stalin for one year, then a couple of years of Hitler during the war, and then after the war, it became Stalin again. During the Soviet occupation, my dad witnessed a scene of deportation of people to the Siberia? Gulags, yeah. Yeah, okay, to the gulag, yeah. Uh, he, he happened to be at a railroad station mm -hmm. where people were being stuffed into cattle cars. And so that made him a really serious anti-communist, anti-Stalinist. Mm -hmm. He was very vocal about that during the Nazi occupation mm -hmm. because it was all right then to be anti-Stalin. Okay. But then that meant now when Stalin came back, Oh, he was in trouble. He was, would be in trouble, so we had to evacuate. I see. And so where did you go from uh, Estonia? Um, we ended up in what was then German territory, Danzig, Gdansk. Okay. Uh -huh. Yeah, well, one of the effects of all of that on me personally was that I realized that truth, absolute truth, is just <laughs> not to be found. Uh -huh. You know, every regime change has its own rules, and I can make up my own mind. I don't have to go by what the mm -hmm. governor says or the 
whoever. I see. So from how long did you stay in uh, what became West uh, Germany? Actually, it was almost four years, I think. So the United Nations organized refugee camps there. Oh, so you were in a camp for four and years. we were in oh, a wow. refugee camp. And we, well, you know, food was not scarce. We had enough to survive. It was provided by... Uh, some United Nations organization. Oh, so if if my calculations are right, you got to like a seventeen or eighteen years old in Germany. Is that right? I was sixteen when I came to this country. Oh, six, oh so from West Germany, you came right to the United States. Yeah, I see. Okay. So my dad got a job teaching psychology in a small college in Sterling, Kansas, right in the middle of Kansas, middle of the United States. So my father majored in psychology in, mm -hmm. at the university in Tartu. However, I understand that at least mother told me that he started out in mathematics, but then he liked experimental psychology where they had, you know, instruments that measured your, uh, I don't know, your heart rate and your, yeah, your respiration and, and your, your, your perspiration, all these things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and reaction times were, yeah. but, and so he was interested in that, so he switched to psychology. I think at heart he was always a mathematician. Mm -hmm. So at an early age, I learned a lot of mathematics from him. And um, I think that was useful because I think mathematics is like a language. If you learn it early enough, you, somehow it settles in your brain differently than if you learn it at an older age. Uh -huh. So for me much of mathematics is really like a native language. Mm -hmm. But I know also you like tinkering with uh, electricity and other things, right? And that's right, yeah. yeah. So that helped me do experiments with uh, low voltage, like five volt electricity. I built a little doorbell where the uh -huh. uh, striker, you know, strikes the bell and that breaks the circuit and then it springs back. Uh -huh. So all of this is I learned at an age where one would learn one's native language. Uh -huh. And so, you know, science sort of comes naturally to me. Oh, nice. So, so where'd you go to college in Kansas? or? So I went to uh, Sterling College, although mm -hmm. they didn't have a very strong program in science. I majored in physics. I minored in psychology. My dad was my psychology teacher. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. Uh -huh. But I did get a background in psychology, which I think is helpful. Mm -hmm. And then um, I went to Kansas State College, or Kansas State University it is now. Okay. And you landed at IBM, I think, in the very early days of this lab. Uh, this lab opened in 61, and you were here on that very first day, I think. Well, all right. So in the refugee camp, we had a really good reading material I happened to read a book called Visible Speech by some scientists at Bell Lab, Potter, Kopp, uh, I forget who the third author was. They had developed a device to produce speech spectrograms. Uh, so what is a spectrogram, a speech spectrogram? A speech spectrogram, which represents sounds as patterns that sort of look like striated bands of dark and light shapes. And um, anyway, I read that book, so I got a pretty good idea about how speech is produced and how it manifests itself in the physical world. And then after a college, recruiters from various companies came to the campus and um, 
there was a group from IBM and I talked to them and I just mentioned casually that I was interested in analyzing speech and they said, you know, we have a speech recognition group at IBM. Oh, and wow. So, yeah. So, so all the way back then, so back in the early 60s, we were doing speech. I didn't realize. Yeah. We were doing speech. Uh -huh. Now, computers in those days were like, <laughs> what, 10 billion times slower than they are today. And they were too slow. Mm -hmm. Speech recognition was done by analog circuits largely because digital computers were too extravagant, too expensive, and you know. Um, and after a few years, management shut down the project because they said technology is not yet ready for it. Mm -hmm. and we tried to protest, but of course, management was right. So then there was a hiatus until about what seventies, early seventies. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I know that a big innovation in the field was the hidden markup models. Well, was that the, the innovation that brought the subject back to life, or was there something else? Well, I think, no, it was, the order was maybe a little different. So in the early days of speech recognition, it was clear that the task was beyond the power of computers in those days. Mm -hmm. But then, as computers got faster and faster, it became a selling point to have applications that required this fast speed. Right. And speech recognition looked like it might become one of those. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, yeah, in the early 70s, it was re, and then we started mm -hmm. doing Fourier analysis and all that by computer, which... Oh, okay, so the first uh, thing was Fourier analysis and did the fast Fourier transform, I guess, to, to right. separate the frequencies of the voice and then analyze that as discrete sort of the letters of speech, I guess. Well, yeah, that's a whole interesting story. Mm -hmm. The initial idea was we'll segment speech into speech sounds. So you take the word one, okay, there are three sounds in there, wa, ah, n. And so you find the boundaries of those, and then you classify each segment as to what sound it is. I that see. was an early idea. Mm -hmm. Not very good, because if you think about it, there is no sharp boundary between the wa and the ah. Uh. The wa. Mm -hmm. Okay, these are called phonemes, is that what? Okay. Yes, or phones. Phones. I see. And there was, a, I know that, they, that the, um, at IBM there was a famous um, guy named Jelinek. Yes. He, uh, I think, if I remember correctly, really, he introduced the idea of the hidden Markov model okay. as the way to model speech. Mm -hmm. yeah, can you give a little bit of the intuition of the hidden Markov model? So a Markov model basically mm -hmm. is a path. Behind it is the idea that you have a system that can be in any one of a number of discrete Space. states. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Whenever it makes a transition from one state to another in, our, in the speech model, it emits a speech sound mm -hmm. or a sound, an acoustic sound. And so, however, it's not deterministic. The sound that it emits could be any one of several. For each transition, there's a separate set of sounds that it could emit with different probabilities. And so it's a statistical problem to try to find the most likely path that the system took through those states. And once you know that, then those states now correspond to the phonemes or speech units. And so then you know what the person said. Right. But it's a statistical decoding problem. It's not one-to-one. -one. Given a sound, you cannot uniquely always tell what but I suppose that the preceding sound gives information about what the subsequent sound would be, and also the sub the sound afterwards tells you a little bit about what the prior 
Exactly, because certain sequences of sounds are more probable than others, frequent words are more probable, and so the whole thing is a probabilistic decoding scheme. Mm -hmm. And so has that basic model persisted to the uh, current day, and is it just a matter of faster and faster machines, or have we gotten more powerful techniques? I see a very interesting progression where we started out very manually. We looked at spectrogram and said, oh, here's a breakpoint, here's a breakpoint, and these are the sounds. And then we went to a statistical model that is more mathematical, less human intuition involved in it. And it always got better when we took out the human intuition. And whereas I'm not really current with what they're doing at, um, you know, Nuance or at... With the neural networks, I'd say. Amazon or wherever, but... My impression is that all the human intuition intuition is now out. We don't <laughs> even talk about phonemes or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's words, and it translates them into character se- sequences, into text directly. Mm-hmm. So this long-term arc of getting the human out of it and making it more mathematical seems to be making things better. I see. Okay, so now at a higher level, what has been your perspective about how science has changed, and specifically science at our research lab? Ah, yes. Well, science in general. Okay, now I'm going back to my granddaughter not knowing what a a telegram is. Mm -hmm. I started thinking about how, not only how my life experience has been different from hers, but then I started thinking about my grandfather. And he was born in 1866. Hmm. Now, in the 19th century, scientists thought that was a very popular idea among them that we have discovered all the important laws of physics. Uh You know, any improvement in the future will be in the fifth or sixth decimal place. So in 1900, the world view of scientists, and I think of many people, was The world is deterministic. There are strict rules. And if everybody just did the right thing, the world would be fine. There would be no problems. (laughs) And so that made you feel guilty, of course, if things went wrong. Uh Somebody was to blame. But uh, I was kind of optimistic. And potentially, everything could be fine. Well, then came, of course, quantum mechanics Mm -hmm. with the uncertainty principle And also relativity, which just upended everything. Yeah, so relativity came first, Mm -hmm. and that showed that those people who thought we had discovered everything were really wrong. Then came quantum mechanics, and quantum mechanics was really bad because the world was no longer deterministic. Mm -hmm. And it's worse than that. We had Schrodinger's cat. So in quantum mechanics, the future is not certain until you observe it. As soon as you make an observation, then, like, for example, an electron could be maybe here or there, but once you make a determination where it is, then it's there. And from there it moves, and you don't know exactly where it is until you observe it again. So then Schrodinger devised this devilish experiment where a cat is in a box where there is a vial of poison, however, which is sealed, but there is a Geiger counter and there's a radioactive sample. And when the next 
when the um, radioactive sample decays the, and the Geiger counter clicks, it breaks the seal and the poison comes out and the cat dies. But it's arranged so that within a given length of time, there's a 50% chance that the cat will be alive at the end of it and 50% that it's dead. And so the question is, if nobody looks at the cat, if nobody observes the cat, is it in a mixture state of half dead and half alive? And, you know, that's counterintuitive. And anyway, science is supposed to be objective. It's not supposed to depend on whether anybody looks or not. So that was a big philosophical dilemma, which to this day, I think, has not been totally resolved. Mm -hmm. So science changed very much from, the, from what it used to be. So we, we, we less believe that we know everything? Is that the idea? Yes, I think that's certainly clear. Then chaos theory tells us that we can't make perfect predictions. Um, then just the mere fact that uh, we know how complicated the world is, we can never have enough computing power to solve all the problems. Information theory tells us that information, you can only push so much information through a given channel, so we never have all the information that we might need. To make predictions anyway. To make predictions. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now, now a topic that we've discussed a lot in that book club that I referred to at the at my introduction, that you're a long-term member of is consciousness. Do you think somehow that the, with the fact that we have quantum mechanics and fundamental uncertainty helps explain consciousness in any way? Or? Okay, well, here I'm going to go way out on a limb and... Mm -hmm. One thing that I have always noticed is that our vocabulary is tuned to our current state of knowledge. Uh -huh. So now the word explanation, I would almost say it's like a European tendency to want to explain everything. Um, I uh, remember once reading a newspaper article where there had been some crime in a small town that was really unexpected, and the article ended with, and the Citizens of this town are now asking, why? And I looked at it and I said, we want an explanation for everything. I wonder if that's a European tendency. I asked one of my colleagues from another part of the world, and he said, no, people uh, there would say it was fate. You don't need an explanation. Well, fate, uh, you know, I mean, there's some mechanism, they could, something that caused the person to murder the guy or... Well, no, this is the whole idea. The, the notion that things have causes and one thing follows after another. And it's a European, Western it's a, it's a European, it's a Western style. However, if you look at the changes that science went through between the 1900s and now, where is it going from here? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really the point. Is that's what I'm curious about. If I look back far enough, I see what huge changes have happened. Uh, and I expect equally large changes in the future. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what they're going to be. Do you have any sense of what, what, what do you think is on the horizon? Well, so there is a number of sort of loose ends in today's physics. For example, the arrow of time, which is that the macroscopic laws of physics are all symmetric in time. In other words, if you toss a ball, it flies in the parabolic path, and uh, parabola is symmetric, 
if you ran it backwards, you could not tell whether the movie is running backwards or forwards. Except thermodynamics. in thermodynamics. Yeah. We have the second law of thermodynamics. Mm. But where does it come from? Well, it seems exceedingly difficult to explain. So is, is the second law of thermodynamics just a fundamental postulate that's not derived from any other physics? Well, but you can't really disconnect it from every other physics because it talks about molecules. But then I think there is another thing. Philosopher David Chalmers wrote a book, The Conscious Mind, where he postulates that consciousness is really something totally separate from anything physical. He distinguishes between the easy problem of consciousness, which is how does our brain process data, which our computers can also do, and the hard problem of consciousness is why there should be any experiences. But we have the subjective experience of consciousness. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, I, there was an interesting talk here, very recently, by the Manuel and Arlene Blum, from old professors from CMU. They had a very interesting perspective about how the subjective experience of consciousness is just a function of time. And it takes us time to do any sort of calculation. And so we think we have this power to make a decision, but it's only because we haven't made whatever calculation is required to affect our decision instantaneously. If we were able to do it instantaneously, then we wouldn't have any subjective experience of consciousness. But okay, with the decision, we haven't made the calculation yet, so we feel like we have control over things, but it takes time to do the, the work, and then we get the answer. And it's, uh, so I, thought, I found that quite compelling, simple and compelling. Well, yeah, but if you try to make that rigorous, I think you'll find that... It's problematic? That's huge problematic. Uh -huh. So... Um, You've heard this argument before, I take it. So a big problem is that physics, of course, is empirical science. We do experiments, we observe the result. And by definition, subjective experiences... And so we observe things that are public. Everybody can look at it and see the same thing. Subjective experiences, by definition, are not public like that. Mm. So we have a logical, philosophical problem when we start talking about consciousness as a subjective experience. Now, my theory is that way back in the 1600s, when Galileo and Newton and Kepler and all these people essentially established modern science, what we now think of as modern science, they were astronomers, most of them, and they calculated the orbits of planets and so forth phenomena that are out there for everybody to see. Meanwhile, Galileo was put under house arrest because he continued to spat with the Pope. Mm -hmm. He didn't think the Earth was the center of the universe, right? Uh, yeah, Galileo did not think. Yeah. Galileo, had, and he's famously supposed to have muttered, but it moves anyway. <laughs> Although historians say, since nobody heard him, how do we know that he muttered? Yeah. <laughs> But so, religion became enemy to science. I feel that that cultural phenomenon has persisted to this day. Many physicists feel very uncomfortable with religious ideas. Mm -hmm. But so, science then defined its rules, and they were objective phenomena 
open to everybody to observe, and subjective feelings, by definition, are not part of that ontology. So we have to fix that philosophical problem before we can go any further in terms of consciousness. Well, I suppose this explanation of our subjective feeling of um, consciousness sort of begets the question, what is subjectivity at all? I see, I see. Okay, that's an interesting kind of question. How, how is it that we have feeling at all, let alone... That's exactly what Chalmers says. And But I remember when I was in graduate school studying physics, one day I took a lunchtime lo- walk. I was walking around and I looked at the clear blue sky mm-hmm. and it just became clear to me, you know, that blueness. Yeah, I know about electrons and why the shorter wavelengths are more... Mm-hmm prevalent in the color of the sky. I know the physics, but that experience is just of a totally different nature. It has nothing to do with physics at all. So why, why blueness as a manifest short wavelength as it, opposed to what, any, something else? Maybe it could be yeah. smell, could be anything. What, yeah, and, and anyway, what is that experience? experience? So then when I read Chalmers' book, I said right away, yeah, I know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But then he says he conducted a survey, and um, he found that roughly two-thirds of people agreed that there was a problem, and one-third said, no, there's no problem. You know, it's all explainable by by what we know. So I'm in the other camp, the two-thirds, where I think there is a problem. I think there is a fundamental philosophical problem that we are not even able to talk about the problem with the vocabulary that we have built up from the tradition of science that started in the 1600s. And so religion, to me, whereas I don't believe that God has a long beard, long white beard and all of that, but I think religion is a field of whatever we call it, endeavor, that at least is open to the idea that maybe the physical ontology is too limited. Mm -hmm. Maybe there'll be breakthroughs in this next or this century, fusing scientific ideas a bit with religious ideas. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Okay, well, very interesting. These are topics that actually we talked about a, a lot in our old AI book club. All right, so every time, in every one of these podcasts, I ask what we consider a growth-minded question mm-hmm. to sort of wrap things up. So the one I have for you is as, you, as we get older, we get an ever, and I'm getting old, I, I get an ever keener sense that any knowledge or wisdom that we may have attained is ultimately going to go to dust. So what keeps you so motivated to always be searching for new knowledge and new understanding? Well, exactly, because I want to keep up with this. Uh, I want to have the current knowledge while my old knowledge turns to dust. <laughs> so it's like you're on, a, you're on a treadmill, but you're losing ground, it seems like. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm not necessarily losing ground. I'm just no. keeping up. You're keeping up. Okay. But maybe not getting ahead either. <laughs> Here's another uh, growth-minded question. So what was a memorable mistake that, that oh, you yes. made while at IBM? And you know, what did you learn from that mistake? Yeah, I thought about it. And uh, of course... One tends to not remember one's mistakes. (laughs) But I remember once being on a committee that was evaluating some proposed projects. And one of those projects was streaming video, streaming digital video. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, in the like early 1970s or something. And uh, 
the consensus seemed to be, and I agreed with the consensus, that that was just not feasible. The data rate required would be much too high. Not only that, that it wasn't feasible, but it would never be feasible because this was just so outrageous. And that was before fiber optic cables and before GPUs mm -hmm. and all the increase in processing speed. Okay, so Raimo, I think that's a wrap. It's been great chatting. We're recording this right now from the room right next to where we had the AI reading group all those years. It disbanded as a result of COVID, but I hope we, we do uh, pick up again and you'll be invited. Uh, so big thanks to our producer, Andy Aaron, who's also the organizer of the uh, reading groups, and to Heloisa Candelo and Cindy Seal, who help immensely with the production. Mm -hmm.